why I'm very thankful for the privilege that's been given to me to open God's Word and share it with you this morning. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Jeremiah for our scripture reading. Jeremiah chapter 16, uh, beginning at verse 19. And I will read through chapter 17, verse 18. Let us hear the word of God. Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in a time of distress. The nations will come to you from the ends of the earth, and they will say, our fathers inherited only lies, worthless idols of no benefit at all. Can one make gods for himself? But they are not gods. Therefore, I am about to inform them, and this time I will make them know my power and my might. Then they will know that my name is the Lord. The sin of Judah is inscribed with an iron stylus with a diamond point. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their Asherah poles by the green trees on the high hills my mountains in the countryside. I will give up your wealth and all your treasures as plunder because of the sin in your high places in all your borders. You will, on your own, relinquish your inheritance that I gave you. I will make you serve your enemies in a land you do not know. For you have set my anger on fire. It will burn forever. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a trumpet in the Arabah. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart. To give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. He who makes a fortune unjustly is like a partridge that hatches eggs. It didn't lay. In the middle of his life, his riches will abandon him. So in the end, he will be a fool. 
a glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are my praise. Hear how they keep challenging me. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. I have not run away from being your shepherd, and I have not longed for the fatal day. You know my words were spoken in your presence. Don't become a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but don't let me be put to shame. Let them be terrified, but don't let me be terrified. Bring on them the day of disaster. Shatter them with total destruction. I invite you now to turn over to Psalm 1, verses 3 through 6 are our our text for the day, but I will read the entire psalm. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, as we give our attention to your word, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide that your spirit would open our consciences and prick our hearts and guide us, that our lives may be growing, not only in our knowledge of your word, but in our love and devotion to you and our striving to be obedient and faithful to you. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. When we previously looked at the first two verses of Psalm 1, we saw that there are two ways for us to live our lives. God promises that his favor and his blessings rest upon those who follow God's instructions for life and who live to bring glory to God. And God says that his favor and his blessings do not rest on those who follow their own sinful desires. And live in rebellion against God. Today we will examine verses 3 through 6. And here God shows us that each of these two ways of living one's life flow out of two different fountains. That are the source of these two different ways of living. And these two different ways of living our lives produce two different fruits. 
And they lead to two very different destinies. Firstly, we will focus our attention on these two fountains that are the source of these two different ways of living. Verse 3 begins by showing us the source or fountain or spring of life that feeds and nourishes the way of the righteous. It likens the righteous person to a well-watered and fruitful tree. It says, he is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. It is important for us to notice that the fountain of the godly person's fruitfulness is not himself, but rather it is the constantly flowing streams of water that his roots are tapped into and that he is constantly drawing from. The psalm writer does not tell us what these streams of water represent, but an astute reader might guess that it is God himself. Because verse 6 tells us that God is the one who blesses and watches over the life of the righteous person. So if you guessed God, you are right. This image of God as the source or fountain of our spiritual life and fruitfulness is developed throughout the entire Bible, beginning in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 16 and chapter 17, the prophet Jeremiah rebukes the people of Judah and tells them that God is going to send them far away into captivity in Babylon because of their wickedness. Their fathers followed the way of the righteous, but the children had abandoned the way of the Lord. And they were following the way of wickedness. And in the middle of these two chapters, Jeremiah preaches a sermon on Psalm 2 and then on Psalm 1, which explains the meaning of these psalms and applies them to the lives of the people. The prophet Jeremiah presents us with an explanation of Psalm 1 in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8. And he identifies the two fountains that supply the way of living. I will quote verses 7 and 8, which focus on the fountain or source of the righteous person's life. God's word says, the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Here is this tree by the stream, and it's big, and it's strong, and it's tall, and it's filled with fruit. Its boughs, its, 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 its branches are, are bowed down, full of fruit producing wonderful, beautiful, rich, succulent fruit. Jeremiah tells us very specifically that the Lord is the source of blessing and fruitfulness and that we tap into that fountain of life through trusting in him, 
through placing our confidence in Him. Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 13, by way of contrast, that turning away from the Lord leads to one's ruin. God's word says, Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord. And now notice how God is described. The fountain of living water. Notice that Jeremiah calls the Lord the fountain of living or flowing water. Thus telling us very specifically that the flowing streams in Psalm 1-3 are a reference to the grace, the spiritual enabling and virtue that God's presence and working in our lives creates. The rest of the Bible continues the development of this thought and imagery. In Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, God gives Jeremiah a vision of a, a new and greater temple. And it is so incredible that no physical temple has ever been built like it. It is a symbol of God's true temple, and that is to say it is a picture of the fullness of God's glory, namely Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit dwelling in the lives of his people. Ezekiel 47 verse 1 says, Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple. What would we say if we saw that? We would say, there's water flowing from under my house. Something seriously wrong. This is the glorious picture that's presented. Here's a temple, and there's a river flowing from under its foundation. These waters are flowing from the presence of God. When we come to the New Testament, this thought and image is further developed. John 1.4 says about the coming of Jesus, the eternal word, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. It gave understanding to men. Jesus came with truth and he came with life spiritual life for men and john chapter 7 and verse 37 through 39 says on the last and most important day of the festival jesus stood up and cried out jesus interrupted everybody at the feast and all the things that were going on and he cried out loudly in the midst of all the people if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this, John goes on to say, he said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus and his apostle John 
tell us that the person who comes to Jesus and puts his confidence in Jesus will continually receive a rich source of spiritual and eternal life and blessings in his soul from the Holy Spirit who dwells within him. God ties all of this together in the final chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22.1 says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one and only fountain of the water of life which is his grace that gives spiritual and eternal life to his people, to all in whom he dwells. And we may add that the water of life flows out from his people to the people of the world. Having seen the fountain of life, let us now secondly look at the two fruits that are produced by these two different ways of living. To apply these insights to verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 1, we should take note it is God's grace that transforms our conduct, our counsel, I got those out of order, our counsel, our conduct, and our company. It is God's grace that transforms our lives in all these areas with the result that we produce abundant godly fruit. Psalm 1-3 says, he is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The fruit and prosperity that God produces is primarily spiritual, not physical, not material. It is a transformation of one's heart's heart values, and one's way of living. Galatians 5, 22-23 describes the fruit that the Holy Spirit creates in the hearts and lives of God's people. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit the Spirit creates in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not only that we experience these, but that we communicate these as well. We see a wonderful example of the fulfillment of the final phrase of Psalm 1-3, whatever he does prospers in the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. The brothers of Joseph were jealous of him. Joseph's father made him a coat of many colors. Joseph's father loved him. Jacob loved him more than any of his brothers. They were jealous of him. They plotted to kill their brother. They were going to put him to death. But by God's providential working, they instead saw an opportunity to make a profit and they sold him into slavery and he was taken away down into Egypt as a slave. Now being hated and being sold into slavery was very hard for Joseph. It would be hard for anyone. And typically, such hardships in our lives are a catalyst for great despair and anger and bitterness in our hearts. 
But God used them in the life of Joseph to cause Joseph to trust in him and to walk in humility and faithfulness before God. And then God blessed Joseph by raising him up to be in charge of everything in his master Potiphar's house. So that Potiphar didn't pay any attention to anything. He left Joseph in charge of everything in his house. And among his servants. But after this, the master's servant cast her eyes upon Joseph and wanted Joseph. She wanted to lie with him. But Joseph again chose faithfulness to God in the situation. Joseph ended up in prison. Things weren't better, they were worse, or so they seemed. Being falsely accused and sent to prison was very hard for Joseph. It would be very, very hard for every one of us. And typically such hardships also stir up depression and violence and self-righteousness. But God used them to further cause Joseph to learn to depend upon him. And to walk humbly and in faithfulness before God. And then God blessed Joseph's faithfulness by raising him up to be in charge of everything in the prison. He was in charge of every prisoner. He was put in charge of everything going on. <coughs> and you say, well, I'm not sure I would really like that job. Joseph was then raised by God to become the second highest ruler in the land of Egypt. Through God's providential working, amazingly, the brothers of Joseph came down to Egypt to seek food so that they could survive the famine, so that they and all their children could survive the harsh famine that was spreading through the land. And they unknowingly bowed down before their brother Joseph. And God's fruit in Joseph's life was such that he did not take vengeance on him, on them, when he had the opportunity to do so. Rather, Joseph became the savior of his entire people. I could take the time this morning to point out the many ways that the life of Joseph is prophetic of the life of Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous man and savior of God's people. But I will leave that for each of you to ferret out when you next read through the book of Genesis. God does not promise his people earthly popularity or fame or riches or comfort, but he does promise his people that he will always be with them and always take care of them. He does assure us that he is sovereignly in control of everything that happens in the world. And that he will bless those who strive to live in faithfulness to him. By bringing to them what is ultimately and eternally best for them in this life and in the life to come.
God declares through the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And we know that what is ultimately and eternally best for us is that we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in righteousness. And that is the work he is working to do in us. To make us more and more like Christ. And ultimately the best thing for us is that we will dwell with Christ in heaven for all eternity. Psalm 1 and verse 4 now moves our focus from the righteous to the wicked. It says, the wicked are not like this. They're not like this abundantly flourishing tree full and laden down with rich and succulent and juicy fruits. No, the wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. The Hebrew is even more passionate in the manner it expresses the first phrase. It literally says, not so, the wicked. That is to say, the wicked are not tapped into the flowing streams. They are not drawing from the favor and grace of God. They do not bear rich spiritual fruit. They do not truly prosper in their earthly lives or in eternity. The prophet Jeremiah also helps us see the fountain that supplies the lives of those who reject and fight against God. What is the source? What is the fountain of their living? Psalm 1 merely states that God does not supply them or pour out his favor and blessings upon them. Jeremiah adds in Jeremiah 17, 5 through 6, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength and his heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a juniper, a juniper in the Arabah. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. God tells us through Jeremiah that the fountain of wisdom and strength and prosperity for those who do trust in God, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, I missed a word, uh, for those who do not trust in God is their trust in mankind and in human ability. And the result is that they are like a stunted shrub that has just a few tiny little leaves on it that look like scales more than leaves. In the very harsh desert south of Israel. No fruit. Not even any leaves. Verse 4 adds that the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. This image is taken from the threshing of grain. At harvest time, the grain that had been grown and was now cut down, the wheat or the barley or the spelt or whatever other grain, many different grains, 
that they raised and, and used, were brought into the threshing floor, often located on the top of a hill, where the wind would blow across the top of that hill. And there they would pull a sledge over the grain. Now a sledge was a wooden block, a heavy wooden block, that had stone chips embedded in the bottom of it. And as they pulled that sledge over the grain, it would separate the stalks from the heads of grain. And it would separate the husk from the kernels of the grain. And then they had these large wooden forks that they would use to scoop under it and throw it up in the air. It would all go up in the air and then the wind would come across and cause all the stalks and all the husk to blow away. But the grain, the kernels of grain, which were heavier, would all fall back down. And after all the stalks and all the husks were blown away, all the chaff was gone, they would scoop up the grain and put it in bags for use. The wind would blow away the chaff, that is to say the husk and the stalks, while the heavier grain would fall to the floor where it would be gathered up. God pictures the lives of the wicked as dry, lifeless chaff. They have no source of spiritual life. They bear no spiritual fruit in their lives. They do not prosper spiritually in their lives, and their lives are carried away to ruin and judgment. Now this may puzzle us, because even the psalm writers often lament that the wicked frequently seem to have everything going their way in this world. They seem to be the ones that are prosperous and successful and have everything they want while the righteous are those who often suffer persecution and ridicule. But the psalm writers explain this by pointing out that the prosperity of the wicked is physical and not spiritual. It is short-lived and it does not gain them any blessings from God. It is not God's blessing upon them. Their influence and their prosperity is often cut short even in this world. And their earthly prosperity cannot keep them from God's judgments in this world. Or from the grave. Or from God's eternal judgment. The life of Haman in the book of Esther is a complete contrast to the life of Joseph. Haman rose to great influence and great power in the court of King Ahasuerus of Medo-Persia in the 5th century BC. But his sinful heart and his hatred of God's people brought him to complete ruin. Haman was consumed by his jealousy and bitterness at Mordecai who refused to bow down before him. And so Haman used his influence to talk the king into setting a date on the calendar to kill every Jew in the Medo-Persian Empire. Haman also had a 75-foot-high gallows built. Can you imagine that? 75 feet high? Okay, that's not quite as tall as the high five overpass, but it's getting pretty close there. Can you imagine going up on top of the high five overpass and looking down and there's this gallows that almost comes up to the top. And he planned to use it to hang Mordecai so that everyone could see Mordecai's shame. 
the morning he went in to talk to the king and to ask the king for this little favor if he would let him hang Mordecai on this gallows. Before he could open his mouth to say anything to the king, the king asked Haman, what should be done for the man the king desires to honor? And Haman was so vain and he was so proud that he was sure that the king was talking about him. And so he recommended that the man be clothed with a robe of the king. And that the man should be paraded through the streets of the city in a chariot by one of the king's most noble officials. And that the official should cry out, this is what is done for the man who wants, the man the king wants to honor. And to Haman's extreme dismay, the king then ordered Haman to do all of this for Mordecai. Because Mordecai had saved the king's life. And after Haman went out and did all this, and he came back with his tail dragging between his feet and totally humiliated, he was immediately called into a dinner with Queen Esther and the king. And there at that dinner... Queen Esther revealed that it was Haman who had plotted the destruction of her and all her people. As a result, they immediately took Haman out and hanged him on his own gallows. As Psalm 1-6 says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. You see, the real question for us to ask ourselves in this life is not whether things are currently going well for us. Because life's events can and do change very quickly. We can go from a pinnacle one day to a depth the next day or from a depth one day to a pinnacle the next day. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. When things are going well for you, rejoice. Be thankful for what God has given you. But in the day of adversity, which will come, it will come to everyone. In the day of adversity, consider, stop and think. God has made the one as well as the other. The real question for us to ask ourselves is whether we are striving by God's grace to be faithful to God. That's what counts. That's what matters. Because God blesses those who put their trust and confidence in Him and who seek to walk in righteousness before Him. When people reject God, what do they do? They look for another God to take the place of God. We need to recognize that people today usually do not have wooden gods or stone gods, but they do have gods. Everyone has gods. They do everything they can to get health, to get wealth, to get entertainment, to get many other things. Those are their gods because they think that if they can get a hold of those things, then those things will make their lives good. Then they will have peace. Then they will have joy. Then they will have comfort. Then they will have security. All these things they desperately desire. But the question for us 
that we should ask is not whether our idols seem to give us peace and joy in a day of prosperity when everything's going well for us, but whether our idols can provide us the peace and joy our souls need in the day of adversity when everything is going very badly. The question is, what God can remove jealousy and envy and anger and bitterness and hatred from our hearts? What God can give us peace and joy and comfort and confidence and love and patience and kindness when we have lost everything that we hold dear? Can the worship of man's wisdom and man's strength do these things for us? And the answer is that there is only one. There is only one who can comfort us and hold us together in such terrible times. And it is Yahweh, the Lord God, the creator and ruler of heaven and earth and the savior and keeper of his people. The prophet Jeremiah brings this point home with power when he says in Jeremiah 16.20, Can one make gods for himself? But they are not gods. And in verse 19, he shows us the profession of faith of those who come to the one true God. He says, Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in a time of distress. The nations will come to you from the ends of the earth. And they will say, our fathers inherited only lies, worthless idols of no benefit at all. Here we see the contrast between what comes to those who trust in man and his wisdom and his strength and what comes to those who trust in the Lord and his strength and protection for us even in the midst of our worst times of distress. This brings us thirdly to the two destinies that come to those who follow the two different ways of living. We've looked at the two fountains of these two ways of living. We've looked at the two fruits of these two ways of living. Let's look at the two destinies of these two ways of living. In Psalm 1 and verse 5, God turns our eyes to look beyond the fruits of of the two ways in this world. He looks ahead to the end results or destinies of the two ways of life in eternity. He says, therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. God does bring judgment upon the wicked, even while they live in this world. We should not forget that God sovereignly rules over all things in the world and uses earthquakes, floods, diseases, wars, famines, and many other disasters to bring judgment on the wicked while they yet live in this world. All things in this world and in their lives, all things in this world and in the lives of the wicked do not work together for good. 
to those who fight against the Lord. But God also tells us that all people must one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give answer to him when Christ returns. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Psalm 1.5 tells us that the wicked will not be able to escape that judgment or enter into the assembly of the righteous when the righteous gather together and are assembled in the very presence of God face to face with Jesus. In Psalm 1.6, God says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, the wicked leads to ruin. The final phrase literally says that the way of the wicked will perish. This means that his sinful choices will lead him to ruin in this life. And it means that his whole manner of living and his life and his soul will come to eternal ruin. The lives of David and Saul are very much prime examples of the lives and destinies of the righteous man and the wicked man that Psalm 1 sets forth. It may even be that Psalm 1 is David's testimony about God's blessings upon his life as revealed in 1 Samuel. David was the youngest of eight sons. Can you imagine that, having seven older brothers to pick on you? Uh, An awful lot like Joseph who had... Ten older brothers to pick on him? David was the youngest of eight sons from a poor family. When God chose David to be king over Israel, Saul chased David with 3,000 soldiers for seven years to kill him and his small band of men. David appeared to have nothing going for him at all. But the book of 1 Samuel shows us that David's life choices revealed that David had a heart after God's own heart. Here was a man who loved what God loved. David lived by the counsel of Psalm 1-1. And God knew, that is to say, God loved David's way. So much so that even in the midst of seemingly impossible situations, like 1 Samuel 29 to 30, in which his own men were so distraught that they wanted to kill David, Even in the midst of such impossible situations, God blessed David and caused him to prosper in everything that he did. Saul, on the other hand, began his ascent to the throne with incredible promise. Like Adam, Saul was the very best that could be found among men. Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. He was strong. He was taller and bigger than anyone else. He was even wise and even humble and even gifted by God. He was anointed as God's, uh, anointed by God's prophet. 
He was chosen by all the people to be their king. And he demonstrated himself as a very capable leader in battle. And he was placed on the throne. But from that point on, it was all downhill. Saul walked in the counsel of the wicked. Saul stood in the pathway with sinners. Saul sat in the company of mockers. He began his ascent to the throne by being the honored guest at a meal in company with God's leader, Samuel. And he ended his life at a meal in the company of a medium who consorted with demons. Saul followed counsel, conduct, and company, or advice, actions, and associations that led him to utter ruin. Though Saul had everything going for him, humanly speaking, and even had thousands of soldiers to try to kill David, and they chased him all over creation and could not capture him, and at one point Saul put his own risk, his own life at risk, of being killed by David, but David refused to kill him. David cut off part of his robe, and later when Saul went out of the cave, David said, hello, look here. God delivered you over into my hand, but I did not kill you. Saul could never catch or kill David. And Saul had tens of thousands of soldiers to defeat the Philistines in battle, and yet when God's judgment came to Israel because of its apostasy, Saul and the armies of Israel could not stand up in the judgment. And they were blown away like chaff, never to be found again in the assembly of the righteous. Such is the strong warning of 1 Samuel and Psalm 1. To everyone, that it is not our human privileges. It is not even our giftedness by God. But it is the path that we follow in this life. Namely, either faith in Christ demonstrated by increasing obedience or rejection of Christ as demonstrated by increasing disobedience. It is our way which is what will determine our final end and destiny. The final verse of Psalm 1 is so sweet and so wonderful. It literally says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. God knows about every detail of everyone's life. And while this should be terrifying to those who try to hide their sins from God, this should be comforting to those who trust in Christ because he knows everything about your needs. And he intimately interacts with you in love. We should remember that the word knows in the Old Testament frequently refers not to the knowledge of facts, but to an intimate love and concern for a person. This is why some translations render it as watches over. God loves the godly conduct of the righteous. God takes care of the righteous. God pours out his rich blessings upon them because God loves those who trust in him. He is always present with us, always watching over us, always caring for us, always guiding us, always able to give us peace and joy and confidence, and always delighting to pour out his rich grace and favor upon us, his precious people. 
when my wife Jean passed away, in 2011, a couple in my church that was going through great struggles said to me, we don't know how you do it. We can't believe that you were able to handle so much. How do you do everything that you do? And while the answer I gave was not at all what they expected to hear, I replied, with regard to how do I do everything that I do, I replied badly. I do all that I do very badly. I drop balls every day, and I mess things up every day. But I know that God is with me. And I know that he is working his good and perfect purposes. Through everything that he has brought into my life. And through all that he is seeking to accomplish in my life. And so I can face whatever comes my way. Because I know that God loves me. And that God is working. His good, his good and perfect purposes in my life. Let us pray. Sovereign and loving Lord of heaven and earth, we give thanks that you have made yourself a source of spiritual and eternal life and love and grace to all who trust in you, that you have rooted us in Christ and established us in the faith, that you have blessed us with the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us and that you are creating the fruit of holiness in our lives. We pray that we may not be found to be spiritually lifeless, barren, and fruitless, but rather constantly growing in grace and loving service to our God and those around us. Grant that we may rest in your love and care for us and may find our peace and joy in you. For it is in the name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.